All right, y'all. Welcome to the Unfazed, Unedited Podcast, where we provide commentary on complicated topics in an uncomplicated format. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. I go by she, her, hers pronouns. And Lisa, this is the last episode of this 2024 Black History Month. (laughs) And so um, not that we're going to stop talking about race, but um, we have some continuation of of some of the previous episodes. But how are you doing? I'm doing well. Bright and sunny here in Denver, Colorado. So I'm loving that. No snow in the forecast. So happy, you know, um, to be free of of that for a while. Oh yeah. Yeah. Our, our temperatures have been dipping down into the twenties at night. So I'm grateful that it's sunny er, sunny er, er. Um, so it's not as cold, but, but let's just dive into phase one because Lisa, this is a continuation of our previous episode where we were talking about my oldest son's black history month assignment, which happened to be on Jackie Robinson. And maybe I messed with the algorithms or something, Lisa, when we were doing research on Jackie Robinson, because the next thing that popped up the following week was that the Jackie Robinson statue was stolen. I mean, I'm talking about cut off at the ankle stolen. Um, And it's like heartbreaking, right? Because this is a bronze statue. Um, it was commissioned for a little league called League 42 that is named after Jackie Robinson using his number. Um, and it's just cut off at the ankles and found in trash can um, in a different part of their park. I guess this person assumed that they were gonna melt this down and sell it. So I'm like, okay, Ricky Alderetti, what were you thinking, man? What, what what were you thinking that made you think it was wise to cut off an iconic statue at the ankles to then be melted down and sold when I don't even think you can melt it because the temperature is so high? Like, there was no thought in this, Lisa. None whatsoever. So breaking no, news. No. Once again, we have a statue <laughs> of a Black person that has been completely obliterated. Yeah. And, you know, I think we are probably giving him too much credit in thinking about some of the points you just made. Um, Yeah, we looked up the melting temperature of bronze. And for those who are interested in random facts for your next pub quiz, it is 1742 degrees Fahrenheit or 960 degrees Celsius. So putting it in a trash can and setting it on fire is unlikely to achieve that temperature but even if that's not what he wanted to do um you know i think that the larger impact of his actions right is what gets missed because some of the reporting around it is related to whether or not it was a hate crime right whether or not it was bias motivated and to some degree It's not that that doesn't matter, but I think what gets missed, and this is a point that you have made offline, Shauna, is that there is a pretty big ripple impact to defacing, destroying, removing um, a statue of such an important person within the African-American community. And given the history of his role there in Kansas City, um, I think that this guy wasn't even giving it one ounce of consideration right he's just thinking oh i could perhaps sell this for parts or melt it down which you know 
we've already established that wasn't very smart but um <laughs> i don't know what you're what you're thinking um in terms of that greater impact right of the the symbolism there yeah it's it i don't think there was any thought i mean the the thoughts we just had in the first few moments of this podcast is more than i think this gentleman ever exhausted okay let me be clear on that um but you know i still feel strongly that oftentimes we do put so much emphasis on intent in the legal system that the impact does get watered down a little bit right so if there was no real knowledge or depth of understanding of the significance of Jackie Robinson. Does that take away the impact of this team of black people in this country, of baseball players, athletes, other black people who understand the significance of Jackie's life? No, it doesn't take away that sting. I don't care if you were trying to melt it down and sell it or whether you hated the man and everything he stood for and did it it's still the harm that's there and based on what i've read in the reports this is not something that can be repaired based on how it was cut so therefore it has to be recast in its entirety so this is a what two hundred thousand dollars statue that now has to be repaired and people are you know raising money and fortunately they've raised quite a bit of money but that would be unnecessary. Like, I'm, you know, Lisa, I'm always thinking about where money is best spent. I'm thinking to myself, if you raise 200 grand for a statue that should have never been touched, that 200,000 could go towards right. the actual little league itself and uniforms yeah, yeah. and equipment and travel if they need to go play games, all those different things. And so, you know, to me, it's just, it's a bit crushing that sometimes we do make the intent more important than the impact. And, you know, for those of you all who may be listening to this particular episode, you know, do a little bit of digging and homework on Jackie Robinson himself. I was pretty decently well versed on Jackie Robinson, but as I shared with you all in the last episode, I was working with Trey on his assignment for school and we actually went into more depth not on Jackie himself, but actually on his wife and how significant she was as a spouse to set up the Jackie Robinson Foundation and a lot of the impact that's happening through philanthropic efforts through his family. And she was a nurse and a professor in her own right. Like there's a lot of deep roots that are connected to this work. And it's not just baseball and it's not really about the athleticism per se. It is about the symbols and how important symbols are in the world. And so, you know, I think we're kind of uh, missing the point if we're just thinking about what was the intent? Why was, why would someone do that? I'm almost yeah. at the point of not caring, <laughs> really. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's thoughtless, right? Not that, you know, there would have been a quote unquote better statue for this person to cut down and try and melt. But um, it's, you know, I think in situated in the context of Jackie Robinson's role in U.S. history uh, and then situated in the kind of larger narrative around enslavement and segregation and Jim Crow, this where you know, white society, white culture, white people have been like metaphorically cutting down African-American people and black people um, for an eternity. The fact that this statue was cut down, right? There's whether or not that was this person's intent, right? There's still that experience, that emotional experience of seeing a really important figure and role model to a lot of particularly young 
athletes, young baseball players, softball players, right? That this is what happens. Like there's no respect. There is just no respect. And then the action kind of fits into this larger narrative of trying to reduce or make small or cut down um, black people, African-American people in this country. That's kind of what it says to me. And just the thoughtlessness yeah. with which this individual did it. And I don't know his racial identity. He certainly could be white based on his picture, but I don't know that. Um, and mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe that doesn't matter. But I think that there is, to your point, that symbolism, it's, it's, it's big. And I think that got missed in a lot of the reporting. Yeah. And, you know, even to your point around, you know, yes, this is vandalism, but even think about what vandalism truly is. It's somebody deliberately tearing up, tearing down, damaging someone else's property. And I dare anybody listening to this podcast to think about one moment in the history of Blackness where something Black wasn't vandalized, destroyed, taken away, um, completely cut down. I doubt you could say that. I'm trying to think of a moment or a time or a situation in which there wasn't someone vandalizing either property or a person. You know, if we go all the way from literally vandalizing the freedom of Black folks to this point right now, there is nothing in Black history that says we have ever not been vandalized, right? And so given that, Yes, it's a big deal. And for a lot of people, they don't care about the intent. They care about the impact. And I'm just imagining, you know, little boys going out to baseball practice and they're looking up to see the usually standing statue of this person that they're trying to emulate. And he's not even there. Like, you know, it is it is thoughtless. It's thoughtless. It's um, and I think what's so sad is that once again, as folks that are part of this community, it always feels like that conundrum of being frustrated and upset, but never being surprised. Never. I would not be surprised. Right. We'll never, I will not continue to be surprised when such things continue to happen because they will. Um, and so given that, this kind of goes back to a little bit of our conversation around uh, Dr. King's home and the next steps of now, how are they going to secure it, right? If you're, they're thinking ahead, how are you going to secure a $200,000 statue that's publicly open? You know, th those are things to think about now in a culture that's never not been vandalized, taken advantage of, you know, those types of things. So it's it's something to be really concerned with. And it's it seems to be a norm towards blackness um, that they're going to have to somehow yeah. at least yeah. attempt to interrupt. Yeah. And just to just to wrap up this phase, as you were talking, it also took me back to conversations you and I have had around critical media consumption. Right. And when we're uh. reading reports about things like this that are absent kind of what you and I have just been discussing and what you just shared that as a critical consumer of the media, I think it's um, mm -hmm. incumbent upon us to think about that, right? To think about what is this story missing? What is yes. the larger impact here that's missed, that's missed and, you know, into which narrative does this fit, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that is an, just an important reminder for us that 
the story was is much deeper than just some dude soaring off Jackie Robinson's statue and then burning it in a trash can, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Over oversimplification can protect certain groups. We know this. So yeah. You're right. Yeah. Boom. That's a great way to end that phase. Love it. Put that between quotation marks, Shauna, and put that on social. It's a good one. Uh, <laughs> um absolutely. all right. So let's transition to to phase two. Um so you know, thinking about Little League Baseball um, and opportunities for young people to participate in after-school programs that may or may not be sport-related, uh, this next phase is is an oldie but a goodie. Um, some of you may have um, read in The Atlantic or indeed in many other publications because, like I said, this is an oldie but a goodie. The school day here, and it's the school day in the United States, but I actually think this is applicable probably in a lot of different countries, that the school day here ends a good two hours prior to the work day. And so in, you know, 1950s America, right, when, you know, we're talking about kind of the nuclear family and how a lot of women didn't work, that school day ending at 3 p.m. or 2 p.m. in the afternoon was not a problem because mom could just roll on over and get the kids. But now we're finding, um, well, it's been a problem for a while, right? But 75% of women who have school-aged children um, are working and but fewer than half of US public schools provide any kind of after after school program. So you end up with a situation where it's predominantly women again who are leaving their jobs or dropping their hours so they can accommodate that, that changing um, that change, right? That that difference. And so I'm curious for you, Shauna, as a mom, right? Right now, you're a, you're an entrepreneur, obviously, so you have a little bit more flexibility um, with your time. But that's not always been the case. Like, what do you think schools should do? Because it just actually blows my mind the more that I think about this that the reality of kind of both parents or family members or all family members, guardians working eight to five, that's not a 2024 thing, right? Like. That has been a reality for decades. So why has the school system continued to stay on whatever school, what's, I don't even know what the schedule is actually, you'd be better positioned to answer that, but seven to two, 7.30 to 2.30, right? Like why has it been so stubborn? No, that's a great point. So let me, let me share with you pre-divorce nuclear family schedule and now single parenting, but co-parenting and also still problematic. Let me share both schedules. So when I was still married, um, the boys were, are, they are three years apart, which means one of them was in daycare. The other one was in public school. Um, and yet that still was a challenge because for us here in the DMV area, especially at that time when you actually had to commute to work, even if your commute was short, it was still very tight to get to work. So for example, if there was um, wraparound care where there's preschool and post-school care, even with that, it may not open until 7 a.m., right? If you have to be at work at eight, you just have chalked it up that you're going to be late because you can be sitting at the door as they unlock the door and throw your kid out of the car at seven o'clock and it still may take you a full hour to get to work, right? So that was the, the drop-off situation. The pickup situation is very similar. If, which is a huge if, 
mom and dad, mom or dad, walks out the door of the office at 5.01 <laughs> and tries to get to pick up by whenever they close, usually at 6, 6.30, both daycare and public school, you're still pushing it. You're probably not going to get there on time. You might get there on time, but probably not. And if you're late, especially for daycare, it for our daycare at least, it was at least $1 per minute of lateness. Okay. So that was when I was still married and, and co-parenting and it was the better situation, right? When okay. it came to the drop-off okay. pickup, right? So that was then. Now we're co-parenting well, but the schedule again is obliterated. Both of us are able to work from home, which I'm grateful for, which does afford us flexibility that many others do not have. And still it's hard. So my oldest son is in middle school and my youngest son is in elementary. So seventh grade, fourth grade, two different schools. My younger son, I'll give you my schedule for the day. My younger son needs to be in the school building by 8 a.m. Then my older son gets on the bus about 8.45. By the time I get home, it's, if I'm lucky, 9.15. So even with working from home from nine to five, that doesn't work because I'm already starting my work day off late, right? Then pickup time. My younger son, elementary school, the bell rings at 2.30, walking out the door at 2.30. So I need to be sitting in the pickup line at 2.30 or if he just walks to his dad's home, which is closer, 2.30. Still, someone probably should be home at 2.30. Last I checked, it's against the law to have a kid that's under 12 in the house by themselves. Last I checked, I may be wrong on that. But if that still holds, you got a kid walking in the house, 2.30, 2.45 alone. Big brother, the bell does not ring for middle school until 3.55. So he can take the bus home. He'll be home by 4.15, et cetera. So you still have at least one kid, if not more than one kid, home alone before you can even walk out of the door of your office at 5 o'clock, whether you're at home or in an office. None of this works. Now, let me right. add the before care and after care. Before care, like I said, can never open early enough for you to get to work on time. Right. After care can't stay open long enough for you to get off work on time. Mm -hmm. And last time I checked, let's be very clear. Before care and after care is not free. Okay. You have to pay for it. I can't remember exactly what we paid previously, but it was not free. Mm -hmm. So given that, can you see how whether you're in a nuclear family, in a single parent home, in a co-parenting situation, none of it works. In fact, it's so timely that we're even having this conversation because there was a mother that posted in the PTO Facebook page, Hey, this year I'm lucky. I have both of my kids in the same school. Yay, they're on the same schedule. But next year I'm going to have one in middle and one in elementary and there's an hour and 15 minute gap between schedules. How do y'all do this and still get to work on time? Mm -hmm. Every single response says set alarms, give your kids responsibility and pray. That's all you can do. Excuse me? Yeah. Now I'm praying for my kids regardless, but I'm just saying that's not a reasonable solution for people that have to get to work. So to this point, I've been living this experience pre-COVID and post-COVID. So mm -hmm. I have no easy answers for you. 
It's not easy. It's probably the toughest part of my experience, but here we are. Does not work. Doesn't work for anybody. No, and it's just mind blowing. And then the cost you just identified of the kind of preschool and post school care. So then, okay, so financially, I'm thinking, you know, there's two of us in this household, we're both earning, but the cost of these, this before and after care or other forms of childcare is prohibitive. So it really doesn't. So all of the money that one of us is working just goes straight into providing that after care and the before care. So why bother, right? I might as well just, you know, not work. And so that we know that women in, relationships always earn less or most often earn less and then that's the person that gives up the job right um you know and that and then with with a single parent where there's no co-parent situation i mean that's got to be even i mean you like you can't not work right as a single parent you have to have a job most jobs are eight to five if you're going to go full time unless you're maybe in healthcare or construction and perhaps your hours are a little more in uh, you know random but it just seems like I don't understand why the school system hasn't caught up with that or the other way around, the work system hasn't caught up with the school system, right? So if the school system isn't going to change its hours and it's going to finish at 2.30 in the afternoon, why haven't we rethought what it means to be a full-time employee to accommodate that, right? Like one of those systems has to give, right? Because this kind of mismatch that has now existed for a generation is causing unnecessary cost and stress it's removing people from the labor force people who are most absent from the labor force right and and so that impacts earning capability that impacts generational wealth there's just a lot that's happening there Um, yeah and then and then one more thing to add to that conversation too that i don't want to neglect because you and i both from a school administrator perspective understands the challenges that they have so let me throw this extra piece in so in our the walking distance for my boys there's what four to five elementary schools one middle school and a brand new high school that's not even maybe three three years old um two years not including the COVID year they were actually supposed to open up during the COVID year so anyhow imagine from a school administrator perspective understanding that the staggered start times of elementary middle and high is almost a requirement. Why? Because there's a shortage in bus drivers to get the kids to school. So how do you create a workaround? If I have one third the amount of bus drivers I need, that one third will have to take the route three times. One time for elementary, one time for middle, and one time for high school to maximize the small number of bus drivers. They can't get everybody to school at the same time due to the bus driver shortage either. So I do understand the, you know, the headache that the school administrators and the county has. But then too, I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's there has to be another route to that. Are you paying folks enough money that they want to drive a bus? Are they are you protecting them? Are you giving them uh, benefits as bus drivers because it is a tough and hectic job? You know, all those different things. Are you providing those? So again systems thinking just blows this whole thing up yes i would love a simplified process that kept up to speed as far as scheduling is concerned but yet if i were you know on the county school board i understand their dilemma as well both and going on at the same time oh yeah 
the school bus thing is interesting because we didn't have school buses in the UK. Like, so that I don't even know that they do now, right? Like, so this whole, so you, there's here, there's a benefit, I would say, like that you can at least put your child on a bus at some point. Like in the UK, when at least when I was growing up, that wasn't a thing. Like every child had to make their own way to the school, whether that was walking, cycling, public transportation, or a family member um, driving them, right? Like there was no like for kids. Um, and so if you took school buses out of this equation in the United States context, that would blow things up even more, right? Because that would make it 20 times, 50 times harder, probably. Oh, absolutely. Because again, going back to not having uh, the the nuclear family in place, like my, so the boy's dad lives in walking distance of school. I definitely do not. I live nine to 10 miles away from school. So there's literally no possible way. If, if I did not have my own personal form of transportation, then the boys would not be able to get to that school in particular. They would have to go to a different school. And so, you know, yeah, all of that blows everything up if you take away the bus system from all of it. And we see little snippets of that challenge. For example, again, remember I told you how we only have like one third of the bus drivers we need. God forbid, Miss Lisa, Lisa, the bus driver is sick for one day, then there's nobody to replace Miss Lisa, the bus driver, which means those kids have to figure it out and those parents have to figure it out. So our phones are blowing up all day long with preschool and post-school emails. If there's a bus that's going to be late, if there's a bus that's going to be missing, all of that's going on every day, all day from school systems. And so, yeah, you're introducing yet another challenge with this whole process. So absolutely, absolutely. It's a mess. It's a true mess. Yeah. And I, it's just, yeah, it's a product of, yeah, decades ago when family systems look different, right? And now um, those f families look different. And the fact that in a family, however many adults exist in that family, most of them are working, right? <laughs> and right. many of them are working eight to five, if not longer hours. And then I, yeah, so I just, it's in, it's like inertia, right? It feels like there's inertia and it's harming people who have the, the least financial um, capabilities is what it feels like. Just constantly like adding another brick for them to carry. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Like, I don't know. like even what you mentioned, too, and I, I know we've gone on a little bit longer with this phase, but even what you mentioned around the option of, OK, if there's buses are taken out of the equation, you know, walk, bike or, you know, personal transportation, that's assuming that a family has the means for personal transportation. That's assuming that a family has the means to acquire a bike for one or more kid. Even if you can acquire one, because both of my kids have more than one bike and I still would not allow them to necessarily ride their bikes home. Why? Because we don't have that type of infrastructure here in the U.S. Like on and on and on, like all those things. I would be worried yeah, out of yeah. my mind every day thinking about, OK, looking at my watch. How long? How long? When are yes. they going to get here? So all of that plays in. So, you know, going yeah. back to what we've said from day one on this podcast mm -hmm. The solution may sound simple, but it usually is not because there's a whole system that holds this problem in place. 
for family members. So I'm going to keep watching that post in the PTO page to see if anybody answers her with a real solution. But so far, there has been no real solution for that parent that's asking the same question you are here. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's a big question that we don't have an answer for, but one that um, just kind of came back into my inbox recently that I wanted wanted to touch on. So um, let's move to phase three. What do you have for us, Shauna? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> phase three reminds me of countless times when my mother told me that I probably need to fix my face. This is it. This is it. And so we have Fannie Willis. Fannie Willis is right now uh, being questioned about her relationship. All right, y'all, let, let's let's get real about Fannie and what's going on here. Uh, Fannie Willis, uh, the DA that is uh, the hot seat herself, right? Isn't it interesting to watch attorneys yep, yep. try other attorneys? Like, it's almost like the you know you don't have that same power dynamic anymore when you're when you actually have someone on the stand who's not an attorney and doesn't think like an attorney and so when you have an attorney asking questions and then the attorney responding and you can tell she's like three four steps down the road in the strategy of i know why you're asking this question and let me tell you what i'm not going to share with you because this is not true etc so seeing uh two attorneys literally putting their training out there to battle is one thing. Um, but, you know, we can't say that this particular situation isn't, uh, is without racial undertone or gendered undertone as well. Uh, because Fannie Willis is oftentimes providing very direct communication. And Lisa, I have to tell you, when I see the headlines trying to describe that direct conversation, usually it is very combative, descriptive. Um, it's usually very warlike descriptions. And for me, I'm thinking to myself, as a black woman listening to another black woman, I'm thinking, it's not too bad. Like she's being kind the way she's delivering that message right now, if you didn't know. Um, however, if you put her up against or in comparison to a Brett Kavanaugh, for example, okay, we've got a woman who's angry and pissed off at the world. And then you've got a man that's passionate. Come on now, Lisa, we know that ain't mm -hmm, the truth. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. with that, the reason why I'm bringing this up is not to necessarily get into the politics of the case because Lisa and I can get into that. We all know that this is very much a distraction to the real issue at hand. So let's name that. But for this purpose, for this conversation, we do want to get into the interpretation of those that are usually underrepresented and disenfranchised and the way in which they are toned, tone policed um, when they are standing up for themselves. So this woman literally could be whispering her point of view and it would be seen as combative and hostile and angry and all of these words that people usually don't present when it comes to men or anyone who's white or anyone who's in a dominant group. So I'll just stop there and say my, my interpretation of a black woman yeah. as a black woman, I am not like, I'm almost looking at the, um, the captions of her videos and photos 
like clickbait, like this doesn't add up to me. Like, you know, your right. the text is saying it's purple and I'm looking at the picture and it's saying orange. Like, no, it's not compatible to me. But I also know that's based on my own bias lenses. But what do you think, Lisa? How do you think it's being covered? And if it's mm -hmm. even close to fair? I think she I know, took it head on and stood up for herself. And I wouldn't necessarily categorize her testimony as combative. I mean, I thought it was great that she took the time to remind people of who was actually on trial versus, um, you know, the distraction that is the situation that she finds herself in. Um, I, I think it's a little bit of a lose-lose situation for her though, right? Like if she had been on the stand, but performed right she hadn't had set hadn't have set strong boundaries and spoken so directly about the truth of the situation then people would have critiqued her for not standing up for herself I mean, wishy-washy and then is she strong enough to be the da in this case and blah 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 right and then if she had chosen not to take the stand at all then you have a situation where there is a narrative that is out there that is inaccurate um and you know she would have been critiqued for that choice as well right like so i just i don't know there was no good option for her and so she likely chose the path that she felt was going to be most productive and useful and you know unsurprisingly she has you know been called combative and aggressive and when really she's just standing her ground right she's really just saying this is not relevant. There's no legal grounds for their particular pursuit. And um, the truth is the truth. And you're trying to make something out of nothing. I do think it's, I do think it's interesting because as um, Shauna and I were having this conversation prior to being on here to record, and I was like, that way die, right? <laughs> and um, I want to point out that people don't even know like his name, right? And this is a situation, it takes two. There were two people in this romantic relationship, right? And so if we are critiquing Fannie Willis's choice around entering an office relationship, given the, the enormity of this case, then why aren't we doing the same for him, Nathan Wade, right? Why aren't we saying, well, perhaps as a special prosecutor in this situation, you perhaps should not have engaged in a romantic relationship with the district attorney, right? Like I don't hear that and I even, you know, so I think that's an important piece here to talk about too. And he's not been critiqued as being combative, right? He's not being critiqued as being aggressive or um, irresponsible, to my knowledge. I mean, I haven't seen that. Right, right. No, I haven't seen it either, Lisa. So, you know, that's that's what gets me about this whole thing is that, you know, even, and I'm with you, Lisa, I'm not without blame either. I was like, now what's his name again? <laughs> you know, the, the fact that we didn't even, uh, we couldn't call his name, um, as readily as we could call Fanny's name was very telling because we are pretty well versed and keep up with a lot of news. And so imagine people who aren't well versed and don't keep up with a lot of news. I know they don't know that man's name. And so, you know, given that, I think there's a lot of race and gender dynamics going on there. And, you know, at this point, you're right, there is no. Uh, there is no right answer for Fannie Willis and what she's willing to do or not do. And I think, you know, again, it gets interesting when it's like there is no 
tone of a woman of color that ever seems to be acceptable. Even silence is like a problem, right? And so given that, it's like, what do you do? You're exactly right. There was no win for her at all. There was no, you know, and and like I said, you know, previously, it wasn't even a, a win factored in. It was which loss would be worse, right? So the loss of not getting on the stand and being completely silenced and letting people have this whole narrative that's not true right, or right. losing by telling your truth and losing you know, in flames, but still being able to have the open mic to tell your truth. I think she went with the open mic to tell her truth. And neither one was going mm-hmm. to be yeah. a win, but it was a better and more palatable loss for her, um, you know, that she could walk away saying, I said my piece and it's on record. Yeah, I I, I think so. And I think it was, I mean, I, I mean, I kind of love her for getting on the stand, right? And because I know that there have been previous communications where she and her team had called the other, um, you know, the defense, they called them on their sexism um, in the ways in which they hadn't, they had been rude and non-responsive yeah. to them. And so I just see that same thread playing out. So I, I do, I appreciated that she decided to, put her foot down here but um it just it, it just makes me sad because i think if she were a white guy then this probably wouldn't even have gotten to this point right there likely wouldn't even have been some kind of trial to not trial it was a hearing really to determine whether or not there was a conflict of interest and whether or not that person should stay on the case so i just think the whole thing from beginning to end stinks um of sexism and racism you know that Mm -hmm. unique position that women of color sit in and she's a woman of color in a powerful and visible position so she she's in the crosshairs right like Mm -hmm. literally and metaphorically right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and you know that piece around you know for for those that aren't familiar with that terminology of tone policing this is what's really happening in the headlines of dismissing the validity of Fannie Willis's points because they may be perceived as delivered in an emotion that's unacceptable and again I'm going back to my point of let me reframe I dare you to share with me any tone by a woman of color that is acceptable there is none that folks can say that oh well you know they're too loud well they're too soft-spoken oh well they're too silent they're not smiling enough they're frowning too much like there's never a delivery that is acceptable from women of color broadly i would say white women too thrown in there but to a 10x percent for women of color and black women and so when you can't win that's where i'm up the camp lisa where i've i understand tone policing And at the very same time, even with tone in place, does it negate the validity of the statement? Whether you're screaming it or whether you're you're whispering it or whether Shauna writes it on a post-it note, 
truth for her is still the truth, no matter which emotion you wrap around it. And so that's why I really kind of try to take all the air out of tone policing because it is used way too often as a distraction from the truth or someone's lived experience. So yeah. I just don't want to yeah. buy into it. And I feel like the the tone policing is coming through the um, a, a lot of the descriptions of Fanny as well as you know, some of the clickbait that's out there. Oh, she fires off at da-da-da-da-da. That woman talked like she was talking to her grandmother. Kindly and direct. Right. And it was still a problem for people. Why? Because she said it through a Black body, a Black woman's body. That's why it's problematic for people. So, yeah. yeah. It sucks. It mm -hmm. sucks. Mm -hmm. There's no win. You're exactly right. No win. Yeah, it does suck. And I think just another to underscore, you know, paying attention to the ways in which she is being reported on, right? Her testimony is being reported on, like critically consuming that, questioning the words that are used, thinking about how a position is being framed, right? From what vantage point and is that same language used for a guy, right? Um, I do mm -hmm. think that that's an important takeaway here that we want people to think about just always always think about what are you reading what are you viewing how are people framing the message and what bias does that portray mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and and even how your own your own built-in biases in interpret what you're hearing right so yes. because i I, I wrote about something a while ago where I was, when I was in seminary, we had to go and observe different houses of worship and so forth. And so, of course, we went to a traditional Black church at that time, and all the interpretations were completely different from mine because I was the only Black person in the group. Mm. The white folks in the group said, oh, well, we heard the the preacher screaming at the congregation. I interpreted as this is the height of the sermon that is actually called whooping, which is known in African tradition to make sure that people hear the, the thesis of your sermon in times where you didn't have mics and you were having tent services outside. We heard, we all heard the same thing differently yeah. because of your lived yeah. experience, right? And, and we do it all the time. And I think to your point around being very conscious um, partakers in media, I think we need to even question, okay, thought that sounded a little bit crass. Well, whether that's true or not, think about why you thought that was crass. How might you have been groomed to think about things in a certain way? And once we start questioning ourselves and the media, I think we'll get closer to what the lived experience is. If not, we're just going to keep falling for the clickbait. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's, that's enough for this week. We will wrap up our episode here after... Dr. Gold dropped some more pearls there. Um, so um, where can folks get in touch with us, Shauna, for uh, in the interim before our next episode? Yeah, well, I, Lisa, I, I know you and I both have been dropping pearls. It just happens to be that we're fired up in the middle of Black History Month, right? So I guess they need to get ready for us to be fired up for Women's History Month next month because we're still going to go there with that too. So. Um, but y'all, as you're trying to keep up with us in between episodes, please make sure that you go and subscribe at our YouTube channel, Unfaced Unedited. Please go there. We are also on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. How about that, y'all? We're on Spotify. Please 
Follow us there. Leave a review if possible. If it's something that really struck your fancy, please tell us about it. Um, we're on Instagram, of course, LinkedIn. Email us, info at unfazedpodcast.com with your questions, comments. As you know, Lisa and I usually bring up articles or things that have popped up on social media that are great topics. You can send us some of that stuff if you see something or hear something. Um, and then, of course, take a look at our website unfazedpodcast.com where you can see the archive of old shows and all the new shows. But if you like this week's episode, please like us, subscribe, leave a review, share this with folks. We hear that folks actually use these particular videos and audio as staff meetings, which is free, which is great. So please use this to share with others in this phase of your life. So until next time, we'll talk to you next week. See you next week.